There is not a whole lot that we do around here that's better than that. If you're wondering, if you're here, new, visiting, you're curious as to, you know, what's this church about? Um, it's, it's about that first, otherwise it's about nothing. Because if the people that are in your life don't have a story to tell about the day that God came into their life and made a difference, uh, how can I say this in as nice a way as possible? Whatever you're attending, it's not a church. Because the church was the means through which God intended to bring us into relationship with Him. So that event shouldn't be foreign to you. You should be used to hearing people say, at one point my life was this way. I met God and now my life is this way. And it never gets old, does it, to hear yet another story. It makes us all remember our own, doesn't it? Hmm. Well, I have to make a public service announcement here. If somebody would have walked up to you maybe last year, like like they had a prophetic word for you, and, and they said, you know, I'm... I see you in church on a Sunday. The saints are 13 and 1, and you're sad. You know, <laughs> would that have made any sense to you at all? You definitely thought they were a false prophet, right? Because there's no way the saints could have been 13 and 1. But nonetheless, it was not a moment of enjoyment, was it? <laughs> uh, but. You know, I've found many, I could preach some messages from, you know, I think the Redskin game was a demonstration of what the sovereignty of God looks like in the sports arena. It's almost like they were predestined to win. And it's like no matter what Washington did, they were not going to win. And no matter what the Saints did, they were not going to lose. I thought that was going to happen last night when the guy missed the field goal. I thought, this is predestined. God's involved here. I mean, a chip shot and he misses it. No, no, no. Well, this morning, this morning we are going to spend some time in the Christmas story. But my, my first attempt here is to, is to rescue the Christmas story from being a story and to put it back in the Bible. If that makes any sense to you. Um, you know, this was, this was pronounced. I... I to keep myself alert at night when I'm praying, I walk. And so I'm walking last night and through the neighborhood, and there's a, a neighbor who has, I think he's pretty much tapped out energy. I mean, the whole block is glowing from this person's presentation. But it was a storybook presentation because on one side was a, a I was going to, well, a really tacky snowman who waved. So lit up snowman who waved. And then you moved a little bit farther and up on the top of the roof there, there was Cajun Santa being drawn by reindeer. Uh, Frosty was on the other side of the neighborhood. There was Noel. There was candy canes everywhere. And then there was a manger scene. I thought, you know, that just captures it, doesn't it? So Santa was there as well. Santa was by the front door. A story among stories. Right? And if you're not careful... The Christmas story can sort of take on children's stories dimensions, if you're not careful, right? Now, this is how children's stories operate. It's an interesting book out there called All I Really Needed to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. Y'all ever heard of this book? It has some interesting insights. We'll probably agree with several of them. The author says, all I really needed to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. (laughs) 
When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands and stick together. Everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation. (laughs) Ecology and politics and equality and sane living. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about three o'clock in the afternoon, every afternoon, then lay down with our blankies for a nap. (laughs) I'm thinking about that for the staff, actually. Or if all governments had a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and to clean up their own mess. (laughs) And it is still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. Right? Now, that's what you learned in the kindergarten. Now, that is the nature of a children's story. You tell this story, and then you extract out of it some kind of moral of the story, some kind of life lesson. Right? So whether it's the boy who cried wolf, you know, everybody told their kids the boy who cried wolf. Why? Because you wanted them to learn the moral of the story that if you lie repeatedly, you're going to have a hard time getting anybody to believe you. Lying has an impact. So we, we tell these stories. There's a moral there. It touches our life. We try to live a certain way. Uh, the tortoise and the hare. You know, you tell your kids the story about the tortoise and the hare at the race line, you know, and, and, and there's a lesson at the end, right? The tortoise wins, and, you know, the race doesn't always go to the swift. It's the one who's consistent and persistent and just hangs in there who's going to make it to the end. Even Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? It's a moral to the story. You know, from the island of misfit toys comes Rudolph, the king of misfits. But yet, you know what? There's something important to be done by those of us who feel like we're misfits. There's just a moral to the story. So then we come to the Christmas story. What's the moral to the Christmas story? Well, peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? Everybody just get along. Give to each other. Think about other people. You know, I mean, Christmas Day has had a mystique to it that has caused wars to take the day off. Christmas Eve, live bullets are flying back and forth. Blood is being shed. Lives are being taken. Hostility is rampant. Christmas Day, there are actual stories on Christmas Day where the opposing sides actually come together, share food with one another. Give things to each other. Of course, then the next day comes and all that changes. But see, there's this great moral to the story. And then Christmas brings with it. It's got it's got dynamic to this story, right? There's there's shepherds, there's characters involved. And there's these three wise men and they're coming up on their camels. They've traveled far and there's a manger scene and there's a baby being born. And there's mystery because this couple's been on the run And it's a virgin birth, and it's a colorful story. There's even a soundtrack, right? you got We Three Kings and Away in a Manger and and all these songs that go with this storyline. Well, beyond moral theme, there's some deep theology in this story. And today I want to take the Christmas story out of all its decorations, out of the box that we take it out of each year, out of the way in which we honor it in that segment. And I want to stick it back in the Bible. Because in the Bible, when you encounter stories, they are not bedtime stories that teach a moral. Here's what you can do with every Bible passage, and you will stay on track with where the Bible intended that particular story or person or event to go. Everything in this word is intended by God to teach us. I'm going to boil it down to three areas. And we should ask these questions when we're listening to these stories. One, what does this story tell me about God? Two, what does this story tell me about man? And three, what does this story tell me about the gospel? See, because... That's what this whole book is about. This isn't Aesop's fables. This isn't a bunch of stories that got collected together that, you know, we read them so that we can tell our kids, now you see, now don't lie. That's why you tell the truth. You know, look at what happened to him. Uh, That's not why any of these stories are here. Now, are there lessons like that in the Bible that we can look? There's consequences, there's wisdom. Yeah. But these stories and people and characters are here 
to tell us something about who God is, who we are, and the gospel story that goes from cover to cover. Now, tucked into a particular dynamic, I want to highlight today, what do we learn in that arena by looking at the virgin birth? Matt read a a verse earlier um, about the story of Christmas. It centers on this birth of a child, this mysterious birth of a child. A virgin who's never been with a man is going to give birth to a son. And what a huge event this is going to be. So under this banner, this virgin birth that takes place in a manger, I'll give you some thought here. Wayne Grudem says, When we speak of the humanity of Christ, it is appropriate to begin with the consideration of the the virgin birth of Christ. Scripture clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother, Mary, by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. I'm not breaking any new ground by telling anybody that. Everybody knows this, but for some this is folklore. For some, it's color analysis to the storyline. It's like, yeah, well, you know, the whole manger thing, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on there. No, no, no. It's critical. This little extra is not an extra. It's absolutely critical to understanding who God is, who we are, and what the gospel is. Right? In your outline there, I put a couple of passages that highlight this. We first hear about this virgin birth, specifically the virgin birth, in Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 10. This is an interesting passage here because there's a king in this passage named Ahaz. He's the king of Judah, the southern part of God's people. And things are about to go bad. He sees these military alliances being made, and he knows that his days are numbered. He he can't hold off these opponents. Well, he's God's guy. His options are put your trust in God and don't freak out, or make an alliance with some other nations who can come and help you and prevent this takeover that you're fearing. Well, well, that's the way that Ahaz wants to go, and God is challenging that. Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord, verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol and high as heaven. It's interesting here. God is actually saying, ask me for a sign so that you'll trust me. You don't need to freak out. I know there's some stuff coming against you, but you don't need to freak out. Ask me for a sign. I'll do a sign. I'll renew some faith in you. But Ahaz said, I I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Listen, don't ever try and be more spiritual than God. Here's God telling you, ask for a sign. Oh, no, not me, God. I would not put you to the test like that. All that reveals is you don't want to do that. (laughs) You got other plans already and you don't want to go with God's. He wants to just do what he had in mind. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Verse 13. And he said, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking on God's behalf. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's the setting where this specific prophecy gets spoken into. And it's going to be fulfilled. So God is preserving for us an insight here into this Christmas story. Turn to Luke chapter 1. The gospel account of Jesus' life records the beginnings and records how this prophecy is going to now come to pass. We are over 700 years since Isaiah spoke that prophecy to Ahaz. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. 
you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, this is no insignificant piece of information here. As a matter of fact, it gets related again in the Gospel of Matthew, this time clarifying to Joseph what's taking place that Mary has become pregnant. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the Bible goes to some great length to tell us this little detail. This, this is not color analysis. This is not adding flavor. This is not right up there with the, the Magi who visited and the shepherds out in the field. Listen, if none of the Magi show up, we don't have a problem. If the shepherds were too busy or sleeping that night... We got no problem. But if this is not a virgin birth, we have a huge problem on our hands. Theologically, we are in a mess. This is not negotiable. And the Bible carefully gives us a road map in prophecy leading us to this unique person. Now, when you look at the context here and what gets said about this virgin birth, you find out some unique things about him. He's going to be a man, but he's going to be a unique man. Who's born? Remember Luke chapter 1 there, verse 35? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now you understand, that's never been true of another human being. I mean, it's not like Mary's going to respond, Well, <laughs> yeah, so? <laughs> Happens every day. Aren't all little, cute little babies holy? And that's not how this is being used. This baby will be unique. He will be holy. As a matter of fact, the Son of God. This is why the virgin birth matters, because he's not the son of some man, which we're going to see later is a huge problem. He's the Son of God. He's holy. He's unique. He's like no other human being who ever, ever lived on this planet. Matthew one twenty one. It says, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is no small undertaking. And as a matter of fact, for anybody else trying this at home, it's impossible. There's not another human being who can save people from their sins. Not a one. So this unique birth of this child is not a children's story. It is a deep theological story, a significant one. Your outline there, I put the virgin birth is a vital element of the story. It's not merely color analysis. It is as important a link in the chain of redemption as the cross and resurrection. Some of us who love theology may have to think on that for a moment. As important? I believe so, yeah. Ray Pritchard in his book, Credo, says the early Christians esteemed this truth so highly that they included it in the first Christian creed. Therefore, it must be of paramount importance, a foundational doctrine of our faith. Right? We've all heard of the Apostles' Creed. Right? In your outline there, I believe in God, Father the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. You don't get long into the Apostles' Creed before that issue is raised. 
The Apostles' Creed is a limited statement. There's nothing about the Magi here. Right? There's, no, there's no color here. This is core truths in the Apostles' Creed. Depending on how you count them, there's like 17 statements in the Apostles' Creed. 17 limited statements. One of them is about the conception of this child, this virgin birth. Now, I want to point to three things, and we'll go through these pretty quickly, actually. Three things that the theology here reveals, that gets revealed in our theology by the virgin birth. One, for Jesus Christ to save humanity from sin, he had to be a man. Very important. Two, for Jesus Christ to save all of humanity from sin, he had to be more than a mere man. Three, for Jesus Christ to be able to save at all, he had to be a sinless man. Now, let me go through all three of those real quickly. First, for Jesus to save humanity, he had to be a man. Now, let me back into why that's important. I'll put this statement in your outline. The Christmas story is not an isolated event to be celebrated. It is the necessary first step. It's not an isolated event. There are many people who celebrate nothing about Christianity but celebrate Christmas. They're cool with all the storyline. It's kind of got nostalgia to it. You know, I'm sure you associate it with a number of other things. But what's unfortunate is that Christianity has been ripped from the Bible and made to stand by itself. And it's gotten big. I mean, it's the biggest holiday going, isn't it? I mean, you start ramping up with this thing in September now. Scooting over two other holidays that are happening before, and all of a sudden it's right, we're just mindful of Christmas. I mean, let's be honest. Easter pales in comparison to Christmas, doesn't it? Even for Christians, Easter is not nearly as big a deal as Christmas is. And so that tells you something. This story has been pulled from the pages of the Bible and made to stand by itself. But if we put it back into the Bible and we look at, well, what's going on here? What you find that the Christmas story is part of a bigger story. It's part of the Bible's ongoing revelation of a story. A story that's been taking place from Genesis all the way through Revelation. A collection of many things that contribute to one storyline. Now, here's what's so critical that when you pull Christmas from its setting, you miss this. Christmas is part of a problem. If you remove it from the Bible, you remove it from its context and you make it stand by itself. And it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. What are you talking about? I mean, it's everybody's gay happy meetings are going on, you know. That means something totally different today, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> people weren't thinking into the future when they wrote some of these songs. Uh, if you put this story back into its context, though, what you discover here is from the cover of the Bible to the other cover, there's a problem for man. As a matter of fact, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, you're into the problem from now on. So that means there's only two problem-free chapters in the whole Bible. The rest of the Bible is about a problem that's come onto the scene for humanity. Now, this is so significant that I could stop here and just say, I will teach you no more deeply theological point than that. Because many religions don't deal with a problem. They're just trying to get you to improve. But there's no critical problem on their hands. Now, this is a book about a huge, huge problem. Now, I raise these questions in your outline. How big of a problem is the fall? Right, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we're in the Garden of Eden, and man has disobeyed God, and sin has come flying into the world. And it will be there until we close the book. And it will be significant it will be affecting us all. It will answer a lot of questions as to why things are the way they are. That's the fall. That's the theological term for that. Well, how big a problem is the fall? Is it significant enough for it to need to be fixed? Because many religions don't try and fix what happened in the fall. 
They just come along and they tell you that, hey, you want a better life? Oh, and there's a God, and um, he'll help you lead a better life. Well, you know, I don't know, Mackie Shillstone does that. You know, the, the guy who, who is out there selling health care products and trying to get you to exercise. Isn't that what he's doing? Mackie shows up, not claiming to be God, but he shows up and he's going to help you out, improve your life, give you better health. Mackie doesn't show up and say, there's a critical problem here. Well, does God show up and say that? Yeah, he does. The whole Bible. What does this story tell me? It tells me there's a problem here trying to be fixed. Well, if you're going to fix this, how do you go about doing it? Well, here's a couple of three details that you're going to need to know if you're going to try and fix man's problem. One, the fall created a separation between a holy God and sinful man. When Adam fell in the garden, he didn't trip. I don't mean that by him. Guy stumbled and fell over. He had a moment where he could trust what God had told him and put his faith in God. Or he could go life on his own. And he could eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing God said, don't do. So in that moment of temptation, he has a decision to make. He chooses to to not trust God. He's going to go his own way. And then the second he did, sin came into the world. And that sin has been with us. Now, what the Bible says is that sin, it created a separation between man and God. A separation previously not known or experienced by man. Now man was separated from God. The Bible says that the... (coughs) I'm sorry. (coughs) In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam, you will surely die. In that day, you will die. Biblical death means separation. That's what it means. So what God had in relationship to Adam from the moment that sin came in no longer existed. God and man were not on good terms from that day forward. Now, if I could stop right there for a second. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I walked through life as a person who didn't go to jail. I probably could have for a couple of reasons, but no one discovered it. And so I felt okay about myself. I didn't think I was really hurting anybody all that bad. I mean, I knew I wasn't perfect. But the idea that God was not accessible to me, that I was cut off from God, not, not because I was, I was Charles Manson bad, but because Adam disconnected us years and years ago. And no one... No one, according to the Bible, no one is born right with God. No one. And this is going to, you're going to see why this is so important about this virgin birth. So it's very important for us to realize, if, if, if I want God in my life, you don't just pick the phone up and call him. Because you and God, me and God, we're not on speaking terms. Sin has caused the holy God to turn from us. So there is a problem that has to be addressed before we can even come close to God. Secondly, part of that problem is God's righteous response is to judge sin. When sin shows up in humanity, God is going to judge it because he is holy and righteous. It's almost as though God's righteousness in the universe that he's created almost operates the same way in which your immune system operates. When something foreign comes into your body, your body wants to attack it. It wants to annihilate it and destroy it. Why? To protect your body. To keep that foreign thing from overtaking your body like a cancer would do. Well, when sin comes into God's creation... God's righteousness and holiness is attacking it. God is going to, listen to me, He is going to annihilate sin completely. It will be destroyed by the righteousness of God. That's how a righteous, holy God responds to sin. He judges it in His righteousness. Now, did you know that? So this is where religions part ways. Because if you want to get this problem out of the centerpiece of our lives, you've either got to adjust what man has done and say, okay, well, I'm not that bad. Well, then I don't really have that much of a problem then, right? Or maybe you'd be a woman to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I mean, I can admit that. And most people are. I watch the news. 
But, but God wouldn't respond the way you just said. He wouldn't do that. See, as long as you adjust one end of this or the other, you get out of the problem. And many, many religions, many, many, quote, Christian churches adjust one end or the other. They make man better than he is or they make God less holy than he is. And so, therefore, well, I mean, God just needs to kind of get over it. And he will. I mean, for goodness sake, God's a loving God, man. What are you talking about? Yes, he is a loving God. He's as loving as he is holy and righteous. Yeah, he's right there. All of these things are right there equal. So this creates a problem for us. The third issue is the judgment of sin. Well, how does God judge sin? Does he get a ruler out, slap us in the hand? Does he say 10 days in detention? After that, everybody's good. What does the Bible tell us? What well, says the, the wages of sin is death. God's judgment on sin was death. Well, isn't that what God said from the beginning? The day you eat of this, you will die. Well, who brought about that death? God did. That was a judgment of God. The guilty will die. Now, not just anybody's going to die here. The soul that sins will die. So this is where we get this challenge of the kind of death that needs to be involved here. It can't be somebody goes out, you know, I've sinned. Let me, let me go cut down a tree and offer it to God. Let me go kill an animal and offer it to God. Now, you have some examples like that in the Old Testament. But the Bible says that never forgave anybody's sins. Because the death would have to be a man's death. A man sinned from the beginning. A man will have to die. This is why the virgin birth, the incarnation of Christ, is no small matter. For Jesus Christ to save humanity from sin, he had to be a man. Look at these passages real quickly. This is the only way to satisfy God's judgment. God is going to judge a man for sin. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's what we celebrate in the manger. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In the way in which God's world works, humanity was created under the law of God. And the law of God said the soul that sins is going to die. If you eat this, you're going to die. And here's the righteousness of God. And if you break my rules, you will die. So God says the only way to fix that is for my son to be a man underneath the same rules. He has to be a man just like other men who were guilty. And he has to abide by the same rules, only he's going to have to actually fulfill the law. He's going to have to be the one guy who lives from start to finish a righteous, perfect, holy life. But he's going to have to be a man. Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. His own son, who has existed forever as part of God, has put on a human body. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Where? In us. This is how God is going to get righteousness into man by he himself becoming a man and living a righteous life and taking the punishment that was ours so that he could give us the righteousness that is his. But he's got to be a man to do that. So the last thought there, God Born as a man is not an optional doctrine. To question, to hold a Christian belief and to say, well, you know, I'm not really sure about Jesus' humanity. Uh, Well, then you cannot be saved. You understand the law of God required that a man must live righteously in order for there to be an acceptance before God. And there's never been a man who has, not a one, until this one was born of the virgin birth in the manger. So this is no small story here. This is critical theology. Second point. For Jesus Christ to save all of humanity from sin, he had to be more than a mere man. 
He's coming on this mission. He's going to be born in a manger. And he's going to live the perfect life. And he's going to present himself as a ransom for others. One man? Well, he's going to have to be a very unique man. Let me give you a heretical view here. This is a heretical view espoused by a man named Francis Young. He says, within the Christian church, many diverse personal responses to the story of Jesus Christ are acceptable for us as well. And that would certainly include the response that sees Christ as a man in whom God was uniquely at work, but not by any means a man who was also fully God. Right? The idea that, okay, I'll grant you Jesus Christ is a unique historical figure. Ain't nobody like him in all of history. And, and I can even tell you, okay, he was born in a manger, uh, and he lived an unbelievable life. God was uniquely at work in this guy's life, and he affected people, and we're still being affected by things that he did and said today. But, but no, I don't, I don't believe he was God. Okay, that's to turn his story into a moral story. Because this story now doesn't solve any problems. It just gives us some morals to live by. It just says, do like Jesus did. Love people who are down and out and who are unloving. You know, hang out with the hippies. That's what Jesus would do. I mean, I'm serious. You know how many people have turned Jesus into a modern hippie? Yeah, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what Jesus would do, you know, when I'm not smoking pot. I mean, I don't know if he, he probably smoked pot. You know, you ever talk to some guys like that? It's like they have so morphed Jesus out of who he is. But when you turn him into some moral story that he, he wasn't really God, he was just a man, you have totally changed any kind of a mission that he could ever have been on. All right, now let's just suppose for a second that Mary and Joseph were capable of having a son who would live his life, let's just say, and he was a man, it was Mary and Joseph. Joseph's the father, Mary the mother. And he lives a life and he never sins. The soul that sins will die, right? So he's, he's out from that. He's fulfilled the law. If that were possible, which we're going to see in a moment, it's not. But let's suppose he did. And he comes to God. He's a man. And he comes and he says, I have, I have fulfilled the law. I would now like to ransom All of humanity? How much do you think you're worth, dude? You're one man. All right. Good job. Go pick a man. Pick one. Pick carefully. Because your life is only worth one other life. You're just a man. How much value would that one man have? Well, he's one man. He'd have the value of one person. He would be able to pay and buy a ticket for one person with his life. If this Jesus Christ is just a man, then he can't be redeeming all of us. He can redeem one of us. So God does something very unique. He doesn't just cheer on the child of Mary and Joseph. God becomes a man. Now let me ask you this question. How much is that man worth? Because he's not just a man. He's God putting on human outfit. Is he worth more than one of us? Two? Three? Well, according to the Bible, God is worth everything. If you summed up everything, you still would not have spent the value of God. He's worth his whole creation. He is the creator and the originator of every life. So he is worth it all. So this one, born in a manger, has unique intrinsic value. Let's see what Ephesians chapter 1 says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Right? Everything that God's been doing from Genesis to this moment has been about Christ. It hasn't been about some man who's going to be Joseph and Mary's son. It's been about God becoming a man. Everything has been about him. Verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite 
all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Another translation says God was summing up all things in him. That's a good, that helps me because I'm an engineer. It gives me a math equation to work with, right? He added up all things and put them in him because there was space in him for everything to fit. Because his value was worth more than everything and everybody else. So if God is going to redeem fallen humanity, all who have sinned and fallen short, and God's going to pay the ransom for everybody, the baby born in the manger can't just be another man. He's going to have to uniquely be God in the form of a man so that he might be worth more than all. So that he could save. So that's my second point. For Jesus Christ to save all of humanity from sin, he had to be more than a man. Last point. For Jesus Christ to be able to save at all, he had to be a sinless man. Because if he sins, if sin touches him at all, he is disqualified now. He can't save anybody. Because sin is the thing that God says, when you sin, you'll separate yourself from me. You have fallen short, and the wages of sin is death. So now when he dies, he pays for himself. So if sin in any way can touch this man, he can't save anybody, including himself. So now God's got to do something rather unique. Now here's where we get into some deep theology. Let me ask you a question. How did sin come into your life? Well, what comes to mind? How, how did sin come into your life? Are you trying to think through life events? And you know, I remember I got influenced by this person, or you know, my parents—they were the first ones on the scene, so they've got to be guilty somehow. Um, how did sin get in your life? How did you catch this? corrupting disease called sin. Because according to the Bible, we, we all have it. It's floating around in our bloodstream. Well, did you know this? That you inherited it? You know, your parents had the sin disease. You probably know that. You live with them. <laughs> and their parents had the sin disease, and their parents, and on and on and on and on. In fact, everybody you've ever known throughout history has had the sin disease. The only one who didn't have it at one point was Adam. But then he caught it. Great guy that he was, he passed it on to the rest of us. See, you, you didn't catch it by the day you decided, okay, I'm two and I'm going to act terrible. And for the first time in my life, I'm going to say no and touch it anyway. And boom, sin came into your life. Uh, no, the reason why you were two and you acted terrible and you did what you wanted to do instead of what you were being told to do, was because sin was already on the scene. It was just waiting for a body that was mature enough to give it some expression and life. And then it would find out all kinds of ways for the next, you know, 65 years to entertain all of us. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death. A man. Death came by a man. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The problem came by one man. The solution came by one man. For as in Adam, all die. Well, why do all die? Because the wages of sin is death. So in Adam, once Adam sinned, he sealed the fate of all of humanity. Now the entire race is corrupted by sin. And there's a problem on our hands. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. One man corrupted us all. One man has the power to give us all righteousness. One man. Romans 5 verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is, God's using bookends right here to make a point. You all became guilty of sin by what one man did long before you did anything. 
So you can't stake your own innocence and say, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, when I get around other people, there are people that are worse than me. I mean, certainly God's going to be... No, no, no. You became equally as sinful as Adam when Adam sinned. You fell into the same category. All of us did. By what that one person did, no matter what you did after that. Whether you were better on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday than everybody else and you stunk on the weekends, but you had a bunch of days where you're not too bad. It doesn't matter. You're in the category with Adam. You're a sinner with Adam. And you'll face the judgment of God. Now, what's kind of cool is because this verse says, well, then what the other man did for us operates the same way. One man, the man born in the manger, through his act of righteousness, made all of us righteous before any of us did anything either. That one man gave us, just like Adam gave us full sin, he gave us full righteousness. No matter whether you live good on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or not. That's not where you get your righteousness from. It's not from many men. It's not many, many men piling up righteousness by how well we're living our lives. We receive righteousness the same way we receive sin. One man gives it to us. Look at the rest of this verse. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. How did you get that sin problem? How did you catch that disease called sin? By Adam. This is why no one is born right with God. No one. Everybody is born under the umbrella of a problem that must be solved. Listen, that point is so critical. So critical. Because I lived growing up in a religious home, going to church, hearing the Christmas story, hearing other stories from the Bible, and thinking, I'm all right. No one told me there was a problem. No one told me from when I was little, day after day after day in my life being raised, that Keith, you're apart from God. You're a nice kid, but you're apart from God. You have a problem. You are cut off from God because you've inherited sin from Adam. And your only hope is to get out of that sin. And you you need to be aware of that. Listen, I didn't grow up hearing that. So I assumed there's bad people in the world, there's decent people, there's good people, there's really bad people. I kind of fit on the gooder end. If I get into trouble... I'll just give God a ring. I did. I would. I would call God. You know, I'd say, hey, God, this is bad. Can you help me out? You know, I knew God was there. I heard of something called prayer. Gave it a shot. I had no idea. My sin separated me from God. I was as dead to God as anybody was. Until this one man born in a manger would live a life that could give me righteousness so that I could be right with God. And until I received that righteousness, I was not right with God. No man is. Look at the rest of that verse. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. This is how we come into relationship with God. Through that one man, this is where gift giving gets its highlight. That one man who had righteousness and who was worth us all gave it to us. That's where you get it from. You don't get it from performing, from memorizing lines, from going to church enough, from confessing your sins. You don't get it from that. You get it as a gift from the only one who ever earned it and has enough of it to give it away to every one of us. Now, One more critical element here, because these verses teach us everybody born of Adam is disqualified, right? So if Mary and Joseph had had a son born of Joseph, born of his father and his grandfather and his great-great-grandfather, eventually you'd have gone back to who? Adam. So if Joseph had been the father of that baby in the manger... And he'd have been a sinner just like you and me. 
And he couldn't have saved anybody, no matter how smart he was, no matter how great he taught, no matter how much of a revolutionary he was and had radical ideas. He couldn't have saved anyone. But a virgin will be with child. Right? Isn't that what Luke says? Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel announced to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He will not be the Son of Adam. He will be the Son of God. He will have no bloodline that goes back to Adam, the sinner, that would have made him a sinner as well. He will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And a woman who's never been with a man will receive the life of God in her who will become the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was never, ever touched by sin, didn't inherit it and never committed it. So if man has a problem... And that problem is related to the fact that God's going to respond to sin with judgment. The babe born in a manger, he's the only one who ever could fix that problem. He's the only one not related to Adam. He's the only one who ever led a sinless life so that when he offers his life as a ransom, he's not just a man paying for somebody who's his friend. He's God who can pay for us all. Listen, does that make sense? That's the Christmas story. It only makes sense when it's in the Bible, when it's, when it's on display in our front yard next to Santa and Hoopy and everybody else. It, it's like it doesn't make sense anymore. It's, it's peace on earth and goodwill to men. Smoked open, tell everybody we're okay today. That's what it's, it's a moral story. If you pull it from the Bible, it's just a moral story. If you put it back in the Bible, it's a problem-solving Story. All right. Now, let me illustrate this last thought here. I won't make you sing these, but depending on who you are, you might carefully want to select your Christmas carols. Right. Let's go to the manger. Let's put the manger in the front yard amongst other scenery and let's sing away in the manger. You ready? Away in a manger. No crib for his bed. That little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. It's a cute story, isn't it? It's storybook stuff. Right before your kids go to bed, cookies and milk. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing. The poor baby wakes. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my cradle till morning is nigh. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever. And love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care. And take us to heaven to live with thee there. I know we've sung that song, right, a gazillion times. All right, now somebody find the problem in that song. Is is there a problem described in the song? Nobody's in trouble. There's a cute little baby. The cows are making some noise. And... He's an endearing child who will grow up to be an endearing man and I'd like for him to bless me and be around me forever. No problem. It's not a problem there. Somebody needs to stop the song and say, great thought, wish it could happen, but there's a problem, right? So if we want a better song to sing, uh, one of mine theologically is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because it's, it's riddled with theology. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. Somebody's in captivity and they're going to need to be ransomed. That's a problem. Do you see this? There's a problem in this song that mourns in lonely exile here. This is the condition of man that God comes to. Mourning, lonely, away from God until the Son of God appears. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. Free them. That's a problem, isn't it? Somebody needing freedom is in trouble. They need help. 
From what? From Satan's tyranny. Oh, there's another problem. I didn't think about that one. There's a devil running around out there, and he has influence and effect on my life. Not only from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save. Is anybody here ever thought you were going to hell? I mean, don't think back to the worst thing you ever did, and you maybe thought you were pushing the envelope here. Did you ever really think, I'm, I was going to hell? I, I may be headed there to hell. All right, if you stick this story in a little manger scene, even singing this song doesn't make any sense. This is one of those songs where I can walk through the mall and hear this being sung and go, oh, God of this world has blinded their eyes that they do not see. You're singing about from the depths of hell thy people save, but I bet if I walked up to you and said, do you know if you're going to heaven or not? Do you think you might go to hell and God needs to save you? You would be so offended. But yet that's what this song is singing about. Oh, come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. And death's dark shadows put to flight. That's a problem. It's a scary problem in this song. Oh, come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. You have to open the way to heaven with a key? Yes, you do. Because the door is locked to everybody who is in Adam. Listen, there's not one person who remains in Adam who will be in heaven. Everybody who was born into this creation is faced with a message from the one who came and lived in a manger and grew up and lived the perfect life, that he was the God-man. And if you would put your faith in him, you would come out of Adam, as the Bible describes it, and come into Christ. Only the people who are in Christ will be in heaven, because only them, that's the only one who could be there. Because the anger of God and the judgment of God against sin for those in Adam has been paid by nobody but those who are in Adam, they will pay. But those who are in Christ have received the payment of Christ. The perfect man, who was God, who could die for us all, has died and given his life as a ransom for captives so that we might be saved. As Matt comes, I want to close by asking you these questions. Right? We started with these questions. When we put stories back into the Bible... We end up with three questions. What does the virgin birth tell me first about God? What do I, what do I learn about God by this virgin birth of the Son of God? Well, don't I learn something about His holiness and His righteousness in this? Because the one who is going to ransom humanity could not be the son of Joseph and Mary. Could not. He would be unclean and defiled by sin because God is holy and he is righteous. See, the virgin birth tells me something about God. The fact that the God of the universe would lower himself to be squirming in a pile of straw in a manger tells me something about God too, doesn't it? I learn about a God who is infinitely compassionate, full of mercy and kindness. To come in that form. I mean, this, does it just blow your mind or is it just me? That the God of the universe who just said, let there be light and pew, I mean, an explosion of activity took place. Just with his word. He didn't break a sweat. And he's going to put on this outfit, lie in a manger and have to depend upon men to change his diapers. Does that blow your mind? What does that say about God? About how He loves? About what He's willing to do to come to us? What does it say about us? Well, if God had to go to those kinds of measures, it tells me we're in some serious trouble. Otherwise, God would have just sent a billboard. He would have just sent somebody to say, Hey, over here, guys. Just come over here and you can all be saved. Everybody's debt will be canceled. You'll all be freed. Sign on the dotted line. Jump up and down. He'd have done something different. 
rather than putting on a human outfit and living as a man and being misunderstood, mocked, ridiculed, and eventually killed. What does that tell me about my condition as a man? It tells me I'm in serious trouble. That God had to do all that to do what? To save me. It tells me I'm like Joseph and Adam. I'm a sinner. I'm part of humanity. And I am not clean before God. What does this story tell me about the gospel? It tells me there's good news. There's infinitely good news. That God found a way to be both holy and righteous and loving and forgiving all at the same time. Aren't you glad that God is a wise God? In His plan, He doesn't have to compromise His holiness. He will fully judge sin. The Gospel says He took our sins, collected all of them, see, because He could sum them all up and put them on His Son, and His Son still had room for more because His righteousness so far outweighed our sinfulness because He was God. And when He put all of our sin on His Son. So you don't get this from the manger. God separated Himself and looked away and poured His judgment on His own Son. See, the idea that our sins weren't that bad and and, and we're going to be okay. No, there's never been a sin you and I didn't commit that was never destined to be fully judged. My sins have been fully judged on the cross where that one man, the only man who ever could have gone there and paid for my sins, died. So this story tells us a lot about God. It tells us a lot about us. And it tells us a lot about the gospel, doesn't it? But when you hear things from the Bible, here's the one thing that still remains. What do you do with that? Put the decorations up next year. Call them on a few of those thoughts. No, the Bible says we need to respond. To as many as received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in His name. Do you believe in the one born in the manger? That He was God, not just a man? If you believe He was just a man, He can't save you, so don't bother. But if He was God untouched by sin, lived a perfect life, and then died in our place. How do I respond? I put my faith in Him. I have a problem. Did you know you have a problem? But you can be rescued from that problem by this one. Put your faith in Him. Call out to Him. This morning you can do that. Say, Jesus Christ, I see it. I get it. You're the only one who ever could save me. Save me. I give you my life. I want you to save me. Come into my life from now on. That's what he wants to do. No longer separated. See, he'll save you from the separation that exists between us and God. He'll actually send his spirit to live inside of you. No longer separated from God. Not now, not ever. That's how we respond. And the truth is, Not all of us have responded that way in this room. Some of us have heard the story, but we've never stopped and said, my faith, it's in you. And from now on, my life is yours. It's not mine. Let's stand up together. Thank you for pulling this story from bedtime books and front yard displays. Putting it in the midst of your word. Where every chapter, but maybe the first two, are about solving our problem. Oh Lord, it's so clear. We have a problem to solve. And there aren't multiple remedies, God, in this room. All of us, all of us 
fall short, have received sin from Adam, and then we have acted on it and been just as guilty as he. Lord, you sent your son so that we would no longer be separated from you. But Christmas is not an isolated celebration. It is part of a bigger picture. It's part of the God becoming man who would live to be an adult, who would live a perfect life, and then he would offer his life on a cross as a ransom. And because he was God, he could offer it for us all. So that one day, one day, at 5885 Florida Lee, some folks could stand and say, Lord, you did that for me. And I needed you to do that for me. This morning, I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And come into my life. I want to know you. And I want to follow you. And I want a story like some of those guys had that stood in that baptism tank who talked about meeting a God who changed their life. God, come and change me. Come and change me, God. I want you in my life. Listen, if that's what your heart is saying, well, then you're praying to God right now. That's what that is. Tell God in your own way. We're going to sing this song and close. But you don't just mouth some words. Don't just sing a song that's familiar with you. Put all your hope and all your trust in the life of one man who came, the only man, the only man who could have ever saved us was born in that manger in a virgin birth some 2,000 years ago.